This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hambridge. Today in episode 11, we take a look at some of the most significant insect pests in pulses. Lance Lindblom shares which pests are affecting the growers he works with as an agronomist in Montana. Then Dr. Sean Prager goes a little deeper on some of those insect pests that they are also seeing up where he is in Canada. If you're new to Pulse Crops, they include crops such as field peas, chickpeas, and lentils. This show follows some Pulse Crop farmers through the growing season and dives into the research that's helping them through some of the challenges they face. We'll also talk to a number of other industry stakeholders along the way. We begin today's episode, though, with Lance Lindblom. He's the lead agronomist for 406 Agronomy, based in Haver, Montana. Before joining 406 Agronomy, Lance spent years in farming and ag retail and with the USDA. We're going to get into the details of which of these pulse pests are causing the most problems, but we start with the good news. You're not going to hear much about chickpeas today because they stay pretty pest-free relative to the other pulses. I would say our our chickpeas are the ones that are most bulletproof when it comes to insects. So we can kind of take them off the list. There's just not a whole lot that we're having to deal with on the insect side with chickpeas. A lot of disease issues, but not on the insect. Both peas and lentils have both of their um, challenges on insects. I would say lentils are probably our most. We have the most challenges with them. This year, we've had just a large infestation of grasshoppers. So we've been dealing with a lot of grasshoppers, a lot of calls for applications to handle deal with grasshoppers. Year to year, we do see a little bit of outbreaks or a little bit of uptick on aphids on our on our lentils. So those two would be the big ones that we're after on our lentils. On our peas, probably the big thing, our big challenge on a peas insect starts out early is the pea leaf weevils. So we scout early with them and they, they're the ones that can cause a lot of damage and probably one that's not you know, people's mindset is not to, I mean, they see the damage and then it goes away and they think it's it's fine, but they're not realizing that really that the majority of that damage is caused by that larva. So that's one that we're not only looking at this year, but we're looking for next year for seeing some issues this year. How are we going to address it next year? Now, let's start right there with the pea leaf weevil before we come back and talk about the aphids later. Lance alluded to the fact there that the pea leaf weevil can cause a lot of damage and people aren't exactly always on top of it when it comes to scouting. I asked him to expand on that a little bit. One of the problems we have with the pea leaf weevil is the producer will see the damage and it looks like, of course, the half, the crescent moon, the marks on the leaves, and then it'll stop and the producers will feel, okay, we've made it through the grazing part of that and the plant's fine. And that is correct. But the problem we have with the pea leaf weevils is those adults, uh, the, the, the eggs that they lay, the larvae go down and they hollow out the nodules. So it's not an above ground. You may not see that, but it's definitely a yield drag. One of the things that's kind of neat about them is they're very shy. So if you're out there looking for them, you might see the damage and say, well, they're gone. And I, I can't see any in the, in the field right now. Just hold still for a minute and don't move. And then they'll start moving around. So they, if you see, if you're seeing damage out there, if you're out scouting, just stop for a minute and hold still, and then you'll start seeing them. But they are a very light brown color, so they can be hard to see. So the thing with the pea leaf weevils, the best ROI we have to address that pea leaf weevils is treating the seed. So if we know it's in the area, we need to be thinking ahead for next year and having the treat as a seed treated ahead of time. Uh, it's also very important. You know, to make sure that um, 
the inoculant that you're using so you can kind of counteract that so that plant has a really good nodulation. So that's another way you can help on that plant is making sure that your nodulation is good. And just the general health of that plant. The better healthier that plant is, the better nodulation, the better ability it has to weather that damage from the larva. And remember, it's the larva that's causing the problems. Even though it looks like the damage you're seeing by the adult, it's really not as bad as what the larva do to the nodules. And another interesting thing about them is that they may be in different crops, but they congregate in pulses and peas in particular for mating. So that's the reason why they do are more attracted in the, the pea plants. You'll see them out there. As with all crop inputs, timing is critical when considering when to spray for pea leaf weevil. Well, it, it has been one that was pretty new to our producers as far as um, that we're at those levels where we need to spray. Again, they're ones that visually you're not going to see out there a whole lot, but they can rob yield by knocking off flowers, knocking off pods, and reducing that yield. The other thing that's kind of interesting on knowing thresholds and staging is after you have pod set and if you have pea leaf weevils on there, they can actually kind of help on drying that plant down. So if you're past that critical stage and you're still seeing pea leaf weevils out there, it's a time not to spray. Just go ahead and let them use to help desiccate that plant. So pea leaf weevil is the big one in peas, but for lentils, one big concern is pea aphid and it can be another tricky pest to scout for. Yeah, the pea aphids is one in lentils that really sneaks up on us because they're you just won't visually see them. They're very hard to see. The only way you're going to see them is to sweep net them. And kind of the critical time is the last part of vegetation. We want to start getting some sweeps out there and get the counts because the damage from the pea aphids happens during the first part, of, during flowering and early pod set. So that's the area that we want to make sure that we're not over threshold. And, of course, with aphids, they have that ability to explode in population pretty quick. So we really need to be on top of them where they're at, which direction we're going on the numbers, and what we're seeing out there for beneficials. Are we seeing quite a few ladybugs out there? So kind of what the predators are, what the predator population is out there, too, also. I find this stuff fascinating. I mean, especially when it comes to pests and predators and the dynamics there. But like many aspects of farming, no two years are the same. Lance says this is especially true when it comes to insect pests. Probably the the big thing with just with all crops on scouting is what you see this year may not be the same thing as next year and the year after. It's, it's always changing. It has a lot to do with what our weather is, what some of the rotations are. So it's always changing. And insects in particular in this environment is not one that would necessarily, if we had a bad issue this year, that we're going to have one next year too. So it's one that's always evolving and changing. Now to learn more about how these pests are affecting pulse crop farmers north of the border, we turn our attention over to Dr. Sean Prager. Sean is an assistant professor at the University of Saskatchewan, College of Agriculture and Bioresources, Plant Science Department. His research interests are insect ecology, and he works extensively with pulse crop pests. When I asked him about the most significant pest to pulses he sees, he went straight to the same one we started our episode with, pea leaf weevil. Pea leaf weevil is probably the one 
that we would typically put right at the top, right? We're always worried about peat leaf weevil. And it, you know, it's a, it's, it's a pest that goes after most of the pulses. So that's a problem. It's hard to control and it's quite damaging. That said, the geography seems to be kind of shifting on it, you know, between Alberta and Saskatchewan and different places. So the geography is a little tricky, but I do think that peat leaf weevil is one of the ones that we always sort of know is a problem. It takes notches out of the leaves. So in fact, that's why the thresholds are actually built on the number of notches you see. So they defoliate. But the other problem is that they can lay eggs and the larvae will feed on the, the root nodules, which, you know, if, if you're growing pulses is a problem, both because the pulse themselves then can't live, right? It kills the pulses, but also it decreases the amount of soil nitrogen fixing you're getting, which of course is part of the reason you're growing. Well, depending on how you're growing the pulses, if you're growing it into, in, a, in a, you know, rotation, part of the reason you want it is that. So, so for both of those reasons, that's, that's a problem. Um, you know, there are, there's a, there are some people who are trying to work on these things, looking for natural enemies and other things they can do. But I think right now it's, it's, it's sort of your standard stuff, depending on where you are, crop rotations, if you can get away with that, when you plant it. And then if you're really, really desperate, you can use a foliar insecticide. Now, the next most significant pest to growers in Saskatchewan probably won't surprise you if you were listening closely to Lance earlier. That's right, it's the P. aphid, and it seems to be getting worse. And so we did not think of P. aphid as a problem here again until recently, but um, over the last few years, since we keep getting these alternating wet and dry years, we seem to get more and more and more P. aphid problems. Um, that's a huge part of the work that my lab is doing is both P. aphid and then also the P. aphid vectored viruses, because neither of those things were thought about very much in, in Saskatchewan, really, outside, even in North Dakota. I mean, we knew they existed a little bit in the Palouse because people in Idaho State and Washington had thought about that a little bit, but we're starting to see them occasionally show up here. So that's a big, a big thing for us. In fact, in some ways, it might be the biggest concern we have is actually increasingly now P. aphids, because in bad years, they're really, even without any virus, it's just on their own, they're really, really problematic. So growers have to spray now, sometimes. Now, I've always thought about aphids as virus transmitters, but you just heard Sean say there that even in the event that they're not transmitting a virus, they still need to be controlled. So what is the big problem then with these P. aphids? That's an excellent question. That's the, it's the $64,000 question or whatever. Um, it's probably more than that, given the cost of fields now. All right, the problem with P. aphids is this. First of all, they go after every single one of the pulses, plus alfalfa and some of the sort of, you know, if they want to, some of the related things. So that's the first problem. Second, they seem to move crop to crop. So it seems to be that, at least from what we can tell, um, that what they actually do is they move from green pulse to green pulse. And so for us, peas first, then probably lentil, and then probably fava. And they also seem to probably migrate into the provinces, at least our province, on wind. And so they come in on the wind, they get in, and if they get in early especially, or if they're overwintering someplace and start moving back onto the fields, what we find is that they start blowing up in peas first. Part of the problem we have is it's hard to monitor them. So you can put sticky cards out, but that doesn't get them very well because they are mostly on the plant. And so we've done some work on this. And 
what we find is that sweep netting still seem or direct counts still seem to be the best and most accurate way to find them. A problem is thresholds. So for example, one sweep net might come back if it's a bad year. So last year, thousands of aphids, which is obviously not a reasonable way of counting it. So we've been trying to figure out alternative ways. And our, our collaborator at Canada actually has been doing things where he's trying to figure out, and this is something that's done a little more common, I think it's in parts of the US for other things, basically measuring cups. So we're trying to figure out how many teaspoons per sweep um, you need before you're in trouble. Because for example, um, so one of the things we're doing in my lab is trying to develop thresholds for PA fit on both lentil and fava bean. Um, and <laughs> bean. So fava bean, we direct count now, but that's more for scientific purposes. But if you do a sweep in lentil, it, it's not unreasonable to come back with like 1500 aphids in one, in like one sweep, which obviously no reasonable person could be expected to do that. So we sort of have to find a way that's more you know, practical, something that just like won't, won't, won't ruin a person trying to do that. Um, so yeah, so volume. And I think ideally we'll try to turn it into something that's even easier than that. But right now the best answer we have is sweep netting still seems to be the most sort of time, the best time to effort trade off that we, that we can think of. One important point we haven't touched on yet is when to start scouting for these P aphids. Sean says, well, it depends. So peas early. I mean, I think peas, you, it's not unreasonable to see them June, July, as soon as we get winds in from the U.S. And then we tend to expect to see them in lentils a little bit later than that, and then fava after that. Um, so I expect it's similar, but probably delayed a bit as you move south and west, right, depending on the wind. If you're in a place where they can actually overwinter, which I don't think is very many places, even in sort of Dakota, Montana, any of the pea growing areas, I, I doubt very much that they're overwintering that much. I think they're probably still blowing in. You'll probably get a little bit timing difference, but I think you're still going to see sort of the same idea. Based on that, what I would say is you have to start looking as soon as you start, you get to the sort of the point where you might expect the winds to kind of come in and start bringing them. I would start looking, even not that frequently. And part of that has to do with the nature of aphids. So what we find is that in a good year, in a, a, a good year for growers, a bad year for aphids, good meaning more aphids for our purposes, <laughs> um, you can wait quite a while. But if we have a heavy aphid pressure, so last year, it, it, we, we went from, in, in some of our surveys and things, from finding you know, 10 aphids per sweep to hundreds within a week. Um, right. And density is the key to this. So it's, it's cause you're sucking insects, right? So the trick is it's all about having, keeping the number of aphids to the point where they're not really damaging the plant, right? Where the plant can compensate. And as soon as you have too much of that, you're in trouble. So I think we would generally say you should keep looking pretty, you know, some regularity so that you're catching it before they get to the numbers where you actually get a problem. Cause the other thing we know, or that we seem to know now is that if you manage them early, that is, if you get to the numbers where it looks like you're going to have a problem where you sort of out, outrun the bio in the natural enemies and things, you better spray it fast. Cause if you do spray it and you can keep those numbers down, you may be able to get away with a single spray. When we let those numbers get high or if the season goes longer, you often, we often find that you're going to have to come back and do it again. So, and we've been doing these experiments. So I, I'm one of the graduate students in my lab. So she has different densities and we'll let them go say to five aphids per sweep and a hundred and she'll let them build up. And what she finds is that she, it's pretty, easy to 
bring the numbers down with a lot of different materials. But the nature of the aphids is just that when they're reproducing, when they're getting good conditions, the numbers jump back up so quickly that you may have to go back again and sort of treat them again. So, and you know, and the, the, the other problem we have is that we don't have good threshold, economic thresholds for these things. So there's none that exists for fava bean at all. And there, there is for pea. And for lentils, the only economic thresholds that anyone has are like 30 years old. And they're for varieties of lentil that nobody's grown in decades. They don't seem to work particularly well. <laughs> So I wondered, does that mean we can sort of predict a bad aphid year in Saskatchewan based on wind patterns? Probably partly how windy, but I think it's also the trajectory. So it's where the wind is coming from and how many aphids they have in the place where the wind is coming from. So Agriculture Canada, this is one of the cool tools that they've kind of made for the world, actually tracks wind trajectory. So we can actually go onto the web um, to the Prairie Pest Monitoring Network, which is a pretty useful tool for people. And it will actually give you information about these things. So you can actually get a little bit of a feel for that based on these quite complicated wind trajectory estimates that they're making. And so sometimes you can guess where they can say, like, this looks like the winds are going to come in. They're starting to come from this direction and stuff. But we don't have the tie-in between, like, what ones mean bad aphids, but... I think if you started, if you went and looked and they started saying like, well, you're going to get a lot of diamondback moths or other things, it might, it might be a indicator that you should probably start looking for aphids as well. So what types of controls are effective on these pests? Sean says they're not really seeing a lot of resistance problems like maybe pathologists and agronomists are seeing with things like weeds and diseases. So the nice thing about this is it seems to be right now, almost everything still works. Um, which is, which is good. So we have a bunch of different materials. They're not all registered for all the pulses, at least not in Canada. I, my best recollection is the same in the States. The good thing for us is the cheap stuff still seems to work. So things like Matador and Desis still work. And they still work as well, as far as we can tell, as anything else. If you ask the graduate student in my lab who's working on this, she will tell you that Volume Express, which is a combination of um, like Exeril and Matador, I think. So it's a, a combination of a systemic and a contact insecticide seems to work pretty well. The answer is you can use the systemics. They seem to be fine. They're more expensive. We're not finding them. They work that much better than well-timed contact sprays which is good. So I would say that if you're not super concerned about your beneficials and you're not super concerned about your sort of other, other things, and you're going to be able to, and you're pretty sure you can get away with a single spray, you can still go along with one of the sort of more traditional pyrethroids type sort of contact things. There are other materials that I think probably would work. We just don't use them very much because they're more expensive. Things like Mat uh, not Mat um, Movento. So the anti- uh, which is a like a insect sort of growth inhibitor kind of it, it it it's a lipid what is it it's a lipid biosynthesis inhibitor so it's used in the horticulture but it's registered against them so you can use that again there's some of the foliar applied systemics are registered in some cases or at least you can use them in combination the nice thing about that is it probably gives you longer protection but again we're not seeing something where that longer protection seems to be giving you much of a benefit we don't think 
But I think what we really seem to be finding is that if you use your old-fashioned agronomy in a way, that is, if you spray them at the right time and keep the number low enough, then that alone seems to get you a lot of time before you have to do anything, which, which is nice. And so, so that's, a, that's a good thing. Caveat that always goes with this, of course, is all bets are off if they actually is virus being transmitted by those aphids, right? Then, then the rules change. If you have a virus, you can't recover. Plants don't recover, right? So the plant is dead. The aphids themselves are doing damage just because of the feeding, right? And so as long as the plant can handle the fact that they're feeding on it, or the, they can handle quite a few aphids. However, once you start getting aphids with virus, you, you have to lower your thresholds, your tolerance, because of course, what you don't want is either large populations of viriliferous aphids, so aphids carrying the virus to build up on that plant, because then if they leave that plant, they'll go spread through your field. And then also, on the same time, you don't want to give the aphids enough time, depending on the particulars of what they're carrying, um, to feed on the plant where they will then make your plant sick. So your tolerance goes down quite a bit, typically, when you have viruses. We don't know exactly how much right now, so that's one of the things we'll have to try to figure out. But the general assumption is, yes, that your thresholds drop when you have, um, when you have virus in your, in your aphids. The one that we worry about is a P. seaborne mosaic virus, but they can transmit most of the aphid, any aphid transmitted pulse virus. These will be the aphid that transmitted. So, uh, what it bean yellow mosaic virus, leaf curl virus. There's a whole host of them, but we don't have most of them. The one we do definitely see is, at least on occasion, is P. seaborne mosaic virus, though. There are definitely pluses and minuses with growing pulses on the Canadian prairie, according to Sean. They don't have to worry about several pests that are found elsewhere, but the ones they do get have very few natural predators. That is wrong, and that is absolutely the case. Um, and pea leaf weevil is a perfect example. A pea leaf weevil is invasive, and it's invasive from Europe, and the weevil's here, but we really don't have... You know, the, the real natural enemies probably that follow it. Same thing with the aphids, you know, soybean aphid is also invasive. There are probably some parasitoids to get after it and you'll see lady beetles do their nice lady beetle thing. But yeah, I think that's true. Pulses are a good example of something that was grown somewhere else. So we picked it up and moved it to North America to grow it. And that's great if it works because it often means you can out compete because you didn't bring the pest with you. But what I also think, what also seems to mean is that when you bring the, when the pest shows up, which, you know, soybeans, another one, right? Soybean aphid is a problem, right? Because we didn't have it and now it showed up. And of course we don't have any of the natural enemy community that went with it. And so, yeah, it's, it's good because we don't have as much pest pressure, but no, I don't think we have nearly the same kind of biological control, natural biological control that we would if um, we're in the natural growing place of these insects or rather of these plants so but for instance we don't get any leaf hoppers or white flies which of course are big problems in tropical places that grow pulses that's another thing about viruses for instance we have a far smaller set of pulse viruses than you do in other places simply because when we're this far north we just don't have the vectors of those viruses where if you start growing them in the middle east or in the caribbean you know Puerto Rico, all these other places that grow pulses, they have major problems with them because they have those, those pests. Well, that's it here for episode 11. Thank you very much to Dr. Sean Prager and Lance Lindblom 
Really appreciate you both being part of the Growing Pulse Crops podcast. We have a lot more great information still coming your way throughout the 2020 growing season. Please subscribe and tell a friend who's also interested in these pulse crops. You can find all of the episodes at our website, www.growingpulsecrops.com. This show is brought to you by the Pulse Crops Working Group with support from the North Central IPM Center. We're releasing two of these every month throughout the growing season, so we look forward to bringing you your next episode very soon.